Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you, the beloved listener of Beyond Governance Show. For those who are joining us for the first time, welcome aboard. This is our weekly installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Timbele. As always, I'm delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue to debunk typical issues through the lens of our esteemed guest. And this morning, we've brought a very interesting a phenomenal gentleman that will give us a sense of a very interesting topic. As we proceed, if you have missed any of our previous shows, not to worry, simply visit our website, which is www.hirefm.com, select your favorite podcast and share with us. Last one we added, I had a very interesting, if not amazing, conversations with Ellen McCorkey, who is an executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And our conversation was uh, President Ramaphosa's trip to Kremlin and Kiev amidst the raging war in Ukraine. And I'm sure we, you know, based on the conversation, there are a lot of takeaway points which um, uh, you you can share with us, um, you know, through our SMS line, which is 34519. Before we proceed, um, I just want to dispense with the formalities. Uh, first and foremost, a words of gratitude to my colleagues here. Um, on that note, Vusama Singh, I thank you very much, as well as uh, Harry Sikela for helping to navigate the show seamlessly and beautifully. You know, usually given the kinds of issues that we talk about from time to time, and for me, what really stands out is the quality of the conversations that we seek to elevate and we seek to ensure that we unearth complexities of the phenomenon that our leaders, both in private and public organizations, are experiencing. And it's quite important that we bring you fresh ideas, new insights. We don't rehash old thoughts and old views. Sort of pride ourselves in trying to bring thought leaders who have impeccable pedigree in what they do. And this morning, it's definitely not an exception. But before we get into the gist of our conversation with Francois Fauchier, who is the research fellow and economist at uh, the University of Northwestern Gibbs, I just want to, you know, weigh in on something that bothered me this week, to be more precise. I'm sure everybody has seen the brutality of police. And I'm, I'm premising my views on the video footage wherein the, the deputy president bodyguards literally obliterated the motorist broad daylight. And this begs the question for me. How such incidences occurs, you know? What sort of precedent creates this fatal crown ground for impunity? Because clearly this is an impunity. If people can kick and drag a person who seems to be defenseless during the broad daylight, and if this person, if these thugs, in my view, were not caught on camera, what would have happened? And what are the implications for this kind of scenes? Because they certainly perpetuate unpleasant narrative about the man in blue. And obviously, this is not a broader representation of 
how the police services is. But unfortunately, these kinds of issues drives the narrative of incompetence, drive the narratives of entitlement, drive whatever it is that comes to mind on when you see such things, you know. And the bigger question for me is litigations, because I'm sure this particular case will find itself in court, where in the state is going to cough up, you know. But when you look at litigation cases in health, education, and of course, SAPS, they run into billions. And what does this say about the credibility of the state in managing these kind of issues? Those are my two cents worth of issues around, you know, this, this very unpleasant matter, which in my view, we must do everything possible at our disposal as citizens. You know, as citizens, we must do everything available. We must use every available tool in our disposal to eliminate this culture of entitlement and impunity, which has characterized the public sector. Anyway, moving along, let me take this opportunity to welcome Francois Fauché, who is an economist and research fellow at GIFS. And the thrust of our conversation is around the South Africans' foreign policy, which has been bombarded over the past couple of months or so. Francois, welcome to Beyond Governance. Thank you very much for gracing the airwaves. Thank you very much, uh, Nimrod. It's uh, lovely to be with you uh, uh, this morning, and thank you for the invitation. You're welcome, my good sir. Perhaps maybe setting the scene, Francois, can you just perhaps map out the country's foreign policy and how this craftsmanship uh, is being perceived by the world powers? So, Nimrod, what has happened over the last uh, few uh, months, in fact, the, the, the real development took place in December last year when the Lady R, you know, arrived in Simonstown, switched off the transponder when it uh, entered South African waters, um, uploaded, offloaded stuff we don't know. The fact of the matter is, Nimrod, it's that uh, South Africa says we are neutral on Putin's war in the Ukraine. But the problem is we don't act in that way. And what, what, what has transpired is that the United States government has asked the Biden administration in the U.S. to punish South Africa for what it sees as our support of Putin's war. So that they have proposed moving the annual AGOA forum uh, scheduled to be held in South Africa later this year to another African country. Now, the AGOA, AGOA is A-G-O-A. It stands for African Growth and Opportunities Act. And I'm going to go in, in, in more detail, you know, during our conversation in what it actually means and, and what the potential impact you know, could be if we were to lose uh, AGOA eligibility status. But what transpired over the last two weeks out of the U.S. is the first concrete effort at retaliation by members of the U.S. government. It is a very clear message, and it is probably as clear as the U.S. can possibly send to South Africa. It's a warning shot, uh, and it's nothing short of potentially seriously limiting uh, our AGOA eligibility status. So, in short... Our love for Russia, or I shouldn't say that, I should say that our government's love for Russia will shrink our economy and will make us poorer. And in my mind, there is no point in making um, a long-term investment into someone who may not credibly survive into you know, into the long term. And, and I'm referring to Putin here. South African government keeps on you know, expressing their support and their loyalty towards um, Russia, and um, I don't know why. I suspect there are some, you know, um, some dealings that have taken place behind the scenes. Um, I don't know exactly what has transpired there, but it is not helping the South African economy, and it is not helping the citizens of South Africa. And that's why this whole AGOA thing 
has stepped into uh, the forefront in the media. So if we look at what a Goa actually is, we must remember this is a crucial thing that a Goa is actually not a trade agreement. Typically trade agreements are entered between, you know, two countries or two uh, or groups of countries. But a Goa is not a trade agreement. A Goa is actually U.S. legislation. And that U.S. legislation gives preferential access to the U.S. markets for thousands of products for many African countries. Um, we, we should also remember, uh, Nimrod, that is that a Goa is an openly political piece of U.S. legislation that was created during the, the days of Bill Clinton. And there was some Madiba magic there in the 90s to ensure that South Africa goes onto the AGOA list of countries that will benefit from the benefits or from the access. So it was designed to use um, access to the U.S. market, which is still the largest in the world, as a carrot to incentivize behavior which favors the U.S., We must also be very open and frank in this conversation here this morning that the U.S. gives access to their market, um, provided uh, you do you, you comply with certain of the terms and conditions that they've set out. It is their prerogative to do so. If we don't, uh, you know, comply with that, uh, we could potentially be kicked out of it. And this is exactly what is being what is under threat at the moment. Beneficiary countries can use um, uh, access to the U.S. market under a GOA. It is, in essence, a gift from the U.S. to countries in Africa. And South Africa is the Africa's biggest AGOA beneficiary, or at least it was in the year 2022, in the calendar year of 2022. So there are 55 countries in Africa, but of the 55, only 35 in sub-Saharan Africa at this point in time in, uh, enjoy AGOA eligibility status. Um, if we look back at the history, History and Nimrod. This is very interesting how it actually all you know evolved um, over the last two decades or so. AGOA was implemented for the first time uh, in on, on the first of January in the year 2000. Uh, it was then reviewed uh, a decade later in 2010. It was then reviewed five years later in 2015 under Obama, and it will be reviewed again next year. You know, so another decade after 2015. And each iteration of AGOA has created more flexibility for the U.S. At the beginning. Uh, an African country could either receive, you know, full AGOA benefits or they could have them completely suspended. There was no sort of in-between, you know, the status. And, and that made it relatively ineffective as a political tool in the U.S.'s hands. But in 2015, an update was introduced, a significant amendment uh, called a so-called out-of-cycle review. And that allows the U.S. president at his discretion, and let me quote here, uh, to terminate the designation of an African country as a beneficiary or to withdraw or to suspend or to limit the application of duty-free treatment with respect to articles you know, from that country. So it is fully within their right to allow limited access or to allow you know, um, or to cut us off to, uh, in, in, uh, up to a certain extent or then to completely remove us uh, uh, in terms of our participation. Well, thank you very much for that very interesting insight which uh, you know, creates a number of questions that um, We'll definitely try and probe a little further. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, 
It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by Francois Fauchier, who's an economist and research fellow at Gibbs and University of Northwest. We are unraveling South Africa's foreign policy, which on paper I'm told it is neutral, and yet in practice, it's in our practice suggests otherwise. Uh, before we took that break, uh, Francois was giving us insights on the evolution of the AGOA in as far as South Africa is concerned. Um, one of the issues that you raised just before we took that break, uh, Francois, it's about the legitimate status of South Africa, which any of you has received preferential treatment over time. And particularly when you look at the sector such as automotive, automotive sector, which has created a lot of jobs. So we are, you know, and you've indicated to us that this is, I mean, U.S. has fired a fair shot and it's very clear that they, by virtue of, you know, proposing a, a Goa forum away from South Africa, um, signifies their, their disdain, if you like, about how we are behaving in relation to Russia. Indeed, Namrot. And this is exactly what has happened. Uh, I think it's also rather important, rather vital, that we understand which countries in the past uh, on the continent have lost their eligibility status and which products in South Africa actually benefit from duty-free access you know, into the U.S., the interesting thing is, Nimrod, if, if you look at the products that are covered under a GOA, and there's more than 6,500 of them, if you measure them by the number of tariff lines, you'll find that these products are not critical to the U.S., so if the U.S. were to withdraw the AGOA benefits, it will have minimal impact on the U.S. economy. That's why it's such a brilliant political tool in the hands of the U.S. Let's just say South Africa were to stop all exports to the U.S., which, of course, would not be the case. But let's just make that um, assumption. Uh, South African exports uh, account for uh, less than 0.3 percent of all of America's imports. So if South Africa were to stop supplying you know, goods into the U.S., the U.S. is not really going to miss us. Uh, the U.S. has very strong trade relationships with uh, Canada uh, and, and with Mexico within the old NAFTA or now the USMCA block. However, Namrod, the same cannot be said for the impact on the beneficiary countries in Africa, including uh, South Africa, which can be very material if access to the U.S. market is lost. If we look back over the last uh, three to four years or so, Mauritania has uh, lost their eligibility status under AGOA. Ethiopia has lost theirs. Uh, Guinea has lost theirs. Mali have lost theirs. And also Cameroon, not really uh, beacons of democracies in the same uh, breath. So the AGOA legislation has been key to building South Africa's exports, uh, and those exports have ranged from vehicles uh, uh, to citrus uh, fruit. The products that have benefited from duty-free access to the U.S. under AGOA from South Africa includes uh, fruits and nuts, processed vegetables, our wine, our dairy products, industrial alcohol products, fruit, and also vegetable juices. The largest AGOA, Monetary benefits are actually enjoyed 
by uh, car exporters from South Africa, uh, in particular uh, a Mercedes and, and, and BMW as well, but also aluminium exporters from South Africa, jewelry exporters from South Africa, and chemical exporters from South Africa. So we should also remember, um, Nimrod, that AGOA benefits uh, do not exist for South Africa's mineral exports, for our precious metals exports, and for our stone exports. So it is a, it's a perfect political tool because you know no one is obliged to use these uh, benefits, but if you do, uh, losing those benefits is always a possibility, and this is exactly where South Africa finds itself. So the U.S. has also made no secret in the past, especially over the last decade or so, that it would like to have a bilateral trade agreement with South Africa. But we have consistently refused to enter into talks with the U.S. to establish you know, um, a bilateral trade agreement. And then the last point here, Namrat, the interesting thing is um, some other African countries uh, have done the opposite. Kenya, on the other hand, has grabbed the opportunity with both hands, are in fact negotiating as we speak with the U.S. in order to establish a bilateral trade agreement with the U.S. so that these uncertainties in terms of AGOA, you know, could be put aside and they can enter into a, an international agreement. It's interesting that you raised the Kenyan opportunity quest, if you like, you know, which it has obviously a different spin when you're looking at the Africa Free Trade Agreement, which denounces these kinds of bilateral conversation. But maybe let's park that for, for, for now because that is a huge topic on its own. Coming back to South Africa position or posture on the position of neutrality, I know we've heard over and over again by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dr. Nalini Pando, suggesting that uh, the country cannot be bullied by the U.S. And obviously, based on what you have drawn out, which is evident in terms of statistics, the U.S. is the second largest, the U.S. is the second largest market after China. We probably sitting at about 10 to 11 billion rents of export, which amounts to about 8.9%. But, you know, so these are some of the credible statistics, which, in my view, informs foreign policy or the direct foreign policy. To what extent do you think the government's love, as you put it earlier, does not recognize the fundamentals which you are putting on the on that you're putting to us. Yeah, Nimrod, uh, it's, uh, I'm glad you asked that because it's, uh, it's, it's almost like the gorilla in the room, Nimrod, that nobody wants to speak about. I honestly do not understand why we make trade and investment policy in isolation. Let's call it economic policy, international economic policy. Why we make it in isolation to our um, foreign policy? Because a foreign policy should be a tool to represent our sovereign interest and to negotiate what is in the best interest of our South African economy. That's what foreign policy should be doing. Our foreign policy, however, seems to be going off on a tangent and expressing this loyalty towards Russia, but they never articulate why or what would be the benefit of this uh, the love that we have for Russia. So I think we need to ask, what does our national government's pro-Russia stance actually mean for South African trade? So this is, it's important that we value this problem correctly, Nimrod, that we, that we are very clear in terms of the impact. And uh, we benefit far more from trade with the U.S. than we actually do from trade with Russia. But it's easy then to overstate the short-term risk if we simply compare the value of our exports to the U.S., 
versus the value of our exports to Russia, and then we conclude we will lose all our exports to the, uh, to the U.S. This is not the case, and I need to be very clear about this. This is not what we stand to lose. Well, at least not overnight, but maybe eventually down the line if we carry on with this type of behavior. Uh, you know, uh, I wrote a, um, um, a piece in the Business Day a few weeks ago about this, and I asked the question, do South Africa really need Russia? And I've used the expression, South Africa needs Russia like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not, not not at all. <laughs> Just on the on the formal statistics, our U.S. exports in the year 2022 in the calendar year were 13 times larger than our exports to Russia. That's order of magnitude you know, um, um, uh, different. The U.S. accounts for about seven percent of South Africa's exports, of which only a third of those are actually made under a GOA. South Africa exported about 188 billion rand to the U.S. in, in the calendar year of 2022. And about a third of that, so 62 billion, was actually going through via um, AGOA. So if we were to lose AGOA, we can still trade with the U.S., but we may just lose out on our um, import duty-free status with the U.S. Now it begs the question, okay, well, so what would be the penalty that we will pay? So the U.S. has one of the lowest import duties in the world, if you exclude you know, what, what has happened between them and China uh, since Donald Trump arrived in the White House in 2016. Our AGOA benefits are thus only the difference between 0% import duty and the low import duties on whatever we would, you know, uh, they would pay on, their, uh, on that side if we were to lose uh, our AGOA uh, eligibility. Now, the other thing is the U.S. has very low global trade dependency. Only about a quarter of GDP in the U.S. Uh, is made up of uh, exports and imports, and they trade mostly with Mexico and Canada. Of course, they've got a massive relationship in trade-wise with, uh, with China as well, but the biggest trade relationship actually sits within NAFTA or the USMCA, so you know, uh, the, um, um, uh, the North Americas, Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. They have a very large domestic economy, but also one of the most integrated economic blocks in terms of uh, 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 NAFTA 2.0. South Africa, on the other hand, is the opposite. We've got a very small domestic economy, and trade is almost three times, well, not about two and a half times larger in proportion to our GDP compared to what it is in the U.S. So South Africa being a small domestic economy and being heavily exposed to what happens to our exports and imports, you know, I think we need to tread a little bit more carefully when it comes to uh, matters that is affecting our ability to trade. Another interesting, uh, rather something that is ignored, uh, uh, you know, by the main mainstream media is that, like in global trade, AGOA is quite a complex um, agreement to navigate in order for your goods to qualify when you send it to this uh, to the U.S. And because it's complicated, um, it requires a lot of resources, you know, expertise and, 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 and financial resources to overcome, you know, the trading across borders frictions that, uh, that exist. So AGOA benefits are quite concentrated. And if you measure it by the number of South African companies that actually benefit, you know, from AGOA benefits. But interesting observation indeed. Um, what I particularly um, find intriguing is your own assessment in terms of the extent to which foreign policy craftsmanship has been done, has been obviously done in, in isolation from economic imperative. Because what you're saying to us is that what should the guiding uh, principle of foreign policy it has to be the extent to which the country's sovereignty can be can be better negotiated or its its posture in the global space can be better positioned to take advantage of imports and exports kind of environment. And you're saying to us there seems to be a disjuncture 
in how the foreign policy was crafted. Perhaps maybe for juridical reasons, as we all know, in the past, South Africa had a close ties with Russia. But in a practical sense, and given the glaring statistics that you've put forth, there seems to be a need to a deeper thinking. But perhaps maybe, you know, what is not coming through is BRICS, because South Africa, as you know, uh, it is part of BRICS, and we see more and more countries moving away from other global and U.S.-led fora to join BRICS. Isn't that personally one of the one of the strategic or tactic which South Africa is banking on by holding on this ideological lineage? For an example, when you look at South Africa's trade to Russia, which is the largest, we trade includes about 11.5 billion rands, and you know, obviously, the U.S. being the second, Germany being the third. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back to Beyond Governance. My name is Nebrotin Bella. I am joined by Francois Fauchet, who is the an economist and research fellow at Gibbs, as well as the University of Northwest, giving us a very interesting insights on uh, the AGOA, you know, which is obviously a very lucrative piece of legislation at the disposal of the U.S. president, uh, an extent to which so far they've threatened to remove all the benefits um, of South Africa. Before we went to that break, I put it to France or perhaps maybe in the in the short term South Africa stand to lose, but the problem banking on the rates of fraternity as more and more countries are beginning to align themselves with breaks and away from the US led um, other global entities. Your take on that France? Yes, Nimrod. Um, it's a, it's a very valid question. Uh, before I go there, perhaps let me just say this, you know, our foreign relations in South Africa, it, it would seem, uh, are conducted separately from our, you know, sovereign economic interests. And in my mind, this is very, very nonsensical and very damaging. So our reputation was already being damaged by our gray listing and the potential risk of secondary sanctions. So losing our, uh, you know, access to a GOA would be even more reputationally disastrous to South Africa. But coming to the BRICS conversation, I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important that we look at uh, no matter how the war in the Ukraine ends, uh, uh, Russia, which is part of BRICS, I mean, it's the R in BRICS, will remain, in my mind, a global pariah state for a very long time. And, and, and in all honesty, uh, uh, Nimrod, the stink of this war will cling to the supporters of Russia for a long time as well. The countries that are clustering around Russia, uh, such as North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, and Eritrea, 
offer South Africa very little in the way of markets for our exports or for our inputs uh, in terms of our global value chains. China, of course, is the exception, and it's an important market for South African mineral exports. But this is unlikely to change because, you know, China is a lot more dependent on trade compared to the U.S., but less so than South Africa, about almost you know, 36, 37 percent of their economy is made up of trade. But, but it's also critical items such as food and energy imports that are very important to China. And China will continue to buy from South Africa because its options are limited to get what we are selling, and that is you know, mainly mining products. So to come to the, the BRICS conversation, Nimrod, should South Africa lean more towards BRICS because of what is transpiring with the U.S.? And uh, let me be very frank here. Uh, BRICS is not an alternative to the West. BRICS does not solve the problem we currently have because trade within BRICS is really between China and India. And that happens on very unhappy terms. China, which has a myriad of uh, uh, subsidies in so many of the industries, is viewed by India as a predatory trade partner. Furthermore, you know, China and India are hardly closely aligned, and they both part of BRICS. India is also a member number of Quad. The other members of Quad is the US, it's Australia, and it's Japan. Uh, and Quad is an informal but a very important security alliance set up specifically in response to the growing military power of China. So also remember what happened over the last few weeks. Modi that made a visit um, uh, to the USA. India, again, part of BRICS, buy their weapons from Russia, another part of BRICS, but is very close to the US and is coming, India that is, and India is sailing closer to the US because it wants to ensure that it has a proper ally in the global economy in case China goes rogue. I'm not saying China will go rogue, but you know, you've seen the, the utterances and the, uh, the things that are happening in the South China Sea towards uh, Taiwan. Other than Russia, China, and South Africa being anti-American, there's very little binding South Africa to BRICS or BRICS members to each other, to be frank, uh, you know, to be honest with you. Then this endless chatter, Nimrod, around a BRICS currency, you know, trying to replace the, the U.S. dollar is nothing more than a fantasy. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, it's, it's very difficult, you know, to lend any credibility to that. So I think South Africa will be dependent on trade with the West for a very long time to come. But that's not a bad thing. The world is slowly deglobalizing after the pandemic and after the impact of this war. But countries with high trade dependencies like South Africa, need to look very carefully at how they set up their foreign policy. The first question that people bring, and let me close off on the BRICS conversation here, the first question that uh, or suggestion that people have is that, oh, no, Francois, you don't understand. If we don't trade with the U.S., we simply go and trade more with Africa under the CFTA. Well, you could be very disappointed that the CFTA is a great initiative. I support it. It's, it's fantastic, but it's also very, very slow out of the blocks. So it's not possible to swap for South Africa, to swap our trade, the U.S. and the EU for Africa. Why not? Because there's insufficient demand in Africa to accommodate the volume and the variety that we trade with the West. So, you know, this international stance uh, from South Africa regarding the U.S. is simply anti-growth uh, if we look at the our national economy, there is no non-West camp or, or China camp or an Eastern camp. It is very lonely out there in the international uh, economy. 
and in, uh, BRICS is, is uncoordinated, uncoordinated at best, you know, and its members have very little in common. And being angry with the West is not unifying enough for the members of BRICS in, in, in order to solve their dislike uh, um, uh, with the West uh, uh, in, in terms of internal trade among their members. Essential, we need a bit of emotional intelligence than just <laughs> to, to understand why we need to act with sense of practicality as opposed to our emotions. But as we take this BRICS conversation forward, and I'm glad you raised the issue of CFTA because this is one instrument that is likely to create more than three trillion rands or dollars for the continent. Um, isn't that perhaps maybe? I suppose if South Africa had a very clear position on CFTA and extent to which one we've got our own strategy, and secondly moving with 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 speed in implementing CFTA, that would be more important than BRICS because of the the kind of market Africa is presenting. And the strategic role South Africa is playing, and in a context of the continent trade, your take on that? No, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. One thing. So first and foremost, my, my, my stance on the CFTA, on the, on the African Continental Free Trade Area, we need to recognise that it has taken an enormously long time for us to reach the point uh, where we are at present in Africa. Um, there are 55 countries in Africa. Of the 55, most have put their hand up to say they want to be part um, um, of the CFTA. Not all of them have ratified it, i.e. made it domestic legislation in their different sovereign states. Um, uh, um, the larger ones have, but not all have. Um, there's phases of negotiation taking place there in terms of trade in goods, trade in services, intellectual property, um, investments, the moving of people, business people across borders without visas and restrictions and the like. But we are in the negotiation phase at the moment, uh, Nimrod, and we haven't, we've seen some guided trade between East Africa and West Africa taking place under the CFTA, but South Africa, although in the SARCO tariff book, in the, in the SARS tariff book, and remember we're part of, you know, SARCO when it comes to trade matters, there's actually now a CFTA column, i.e. the import duties payable per tariff line if you were to import goods from another CFTA member, but it's not a tradable column, in fact, whereas all the other columns for Mercosur for EPA, for instance, um, uh, are tradable ones in the tariff book. The CFTA one is there, but it's not tradable, which is a little bit confusing because it's a trade agreement. We've signed it. We've ratified it. But we don't have tariff agreements for all the other members. We are still in the negotiation phase, making tariff proposals and also negotiating the rules of origin. So only when all the negotiations are completed and, and trade actually takes place will the CFTA provide economic benefits to South Africa. Unfortunately, this because it's a multilateral trade agreement, politicians use it to talk it up, to say, this is the best thing since sliced bread, and it is the best thing since sliced bread. I agree with that, but at the moment, it's potential. It has great potential. It doesn't have... It, 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 that potential has not manifested in additional wealth via increased export earnings of our goods into Africa. We must be very clear about this. It's still... but And, and I want to use this analogy and, and, and this parallel because it you know, brings it closer to uh, one's personal circumstances away from the, the you know the vague and, and, and complicated world of multilateral trade negotiations if i say that i 
have great potential to be um, to become Mr. Universe or to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance. But I postpone the day that I'm going to start uh, working out and the day that I'm going to start my diet. I say, I'm going to do it on Monday. And when Monday comes, you're very busy week. I'm going to do it next week, Monday. It, the CFTA is almost like that. It has this great potential because mm-hmm. it says it's going to do all these different things. But it hasn't done those things as yet. Now, Nimrod, can we be cross with other African nations that they haven't done those things? Well, if we, the minute we say that, they can say they are cross with us because we have a lot of things from our side. So South Africa can take the lead and we can push for reforms and, and into negotiations to, to enter into with other African states. But we can't, we don't have control over what they do. And the biggest thing in the CFTA, let me conclude with this. The biggest thing in the CFTA is actually not the reduction in tariffs for intra-Africa trade. It is the improvement in infrastructure, uh, roads of getting the goods to the port, uh, to the ports and to the border posts, and then at the border post, making sure that the officials that man the border post and the systems that are implemented uh, at the border post are at such a level of sophistication that all these new complex rules can quite easily be processed and the goods can get to the border posts quickly and efficiently and cheaply and be processed in the same way and then you know and then enjoy the same kind of treatment in the other country that has by far the biggest potential impact in terms of the wealth creation effect that this implementation of the CFTA will have on the African continent. But that's also the hardest part, Nimrod. Tariffs negotiated down, it's not easy, but it's easier than to address non-tariff barriers and non-tariff issues like infrastructure, roads, rail, and and border posts. Um, if, If Africa can solve that, I mean, we've seen the studies from the World Bank. We've seen the studies from UNTAD, uh, UNECA, in terms of you know, what will be the, the, the potential wealth creation effect on the African continent if Africa gets that right. But Africa can only enjoy those benefits once those things are in place. So it's uh, uh, the, the CFTA, in many ways, is taking two steps forward and one step back. May, let me be very clear here. This is typically the case with these large uh, multilateral trade agreements, especially if, you, if it is so large. A last point on the CFTA, the CFTA, if you measure it by the number of countries that are participating in it, will be the largest free trade agreement in the world. And it's also happening on a country which is incredibly diverse, incredibly large geographically, has a massive gap in terms of infrastructure, uh, but uh, countries have expressed this great ambition you know, to overcome these problems. But when when we've overcome those uh, shortcomings, we will enjoy those benefits. You know, it's, it's unfortunately that the chronology uh, goes in that order. I couldn't agree with you more, particularly when you raised the issue of a grand plan, and yet we not we keep on postponing. And the bulk of the CFTA tariff-related issues are still at the negotiation state, stage. And I agree that uh, not all... Well, majority of the African countries have, as you know, have ratified the, 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 the CFTA. And yet ratification uh, still have to get to the mechanic of how it's been done. And the biggest challenge, as you've correctly pointed out, is the lack of infrastructure, the road infrastructure, which is the biggest uh, hurdle that the African countries need to address because you still have, uh, you know, goods that have been flown to Europe and back to Africa, you know, because we don't have good uh, road infrastructure. The other critical point that you've raised, the sophistication of the border post. We need to have systems at border posts where they'll be able to process the, the, the very very complex tariffs arrangement, which we are not yet there. So you were saying to us, 
in as much as uh, CFTA is a solution, it's going to take time. And in the, in the, in the meantime, we need to, you know, we need to protect the goose that lays the golden egg. In this particular instance, Agoa, if we forfeit our, 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 our eligibility status, we are only harming ourselves in, in, in the long and short term. That's, that's what I'm picking up. Am I correct? Exactly, exactly. You know, um, if you look at the reason why we're having this conversation today is this because there's been significant political interference into the economic matters um, of the economy. So no country can progress if its politics is more profitable than its industries. You know, in a country where those in government are richer than the entrepreneurs, uh, they manufacture poverty. And I'm, 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 I'm terrified that uh, this is, in fact, you know, where we're going with this. We are, in fact, seeing the result of exactly that you're transpiring. So, but Nimrod, if we care about our AGOA eligibility and the tens of thousands of jobs that it creates in South Africa right now, today, then the time has come for us to clarify how we as a country do not threaten the U.S. security interests because those jobs exist because of a, of a U.S. gift to us. We must come out with the facts about the Lady R in Simonstown in December last year, what it was docking uh, uh, um, um, uh, um, uh, in secret in South Africa and what was loaded onto it and before departure. We must also explain them, Rod, the landing of the Russian aircraft at the, at the Vatikluft Air Base. We must um, set out a clear policy on the supply of weapons to Russia and why the U.S. should be able to trust South Africa uh, and our stance of neutrality. Uh, and, th- and this means at a minimum that we uh, um, will not in any way you know, fan the flames of war in Europe. And this clarity needs to be backed up by a capable diplomatic effort by our foreign services in the USA. So when AGOA was last renewed in 2015, Nimrod, African nations worked together back then to convince the American politicians that it would be wise to renew AGOA. And then it happened. And, and back then, South Africa played a very important part in that African effort. Uh, Our South African Department of International Relations uh, uh, and Cooperation now needs to put in place an equivalent strategy drawing on our most experienced trade negotiators wherever they are in order to convince the U.S. uh, politicians that it should, in fact, be renewed and um, that we do care about our relationship with them. You know, a, a last thing here that I want to conclude with, Nimrod, if we think about what is happening here in principle uh, for our love that we express to, uh, you know, to Russia is that uh, I have a saying that I said, bad leaders care about who is right. Good leaders care about what is right. And we need to stop asking who is right here. We need to start asking what is the right thing to do here, Nimrod. How interesting and uh, intriguing the last part that you have just mentioned. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.
Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. I'm having an intriguing conversation with Francois Fosse, who is the uh, research fellow at Gibbs as well as the University of Northwest. Uh, before we went to that break, one thing that stood for me and which, which he probably just, you know, try and illuminate for us is the, 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 the position that you've put to us that um, it appears as if as politicians are more powerful than entrepreneurs in the South African context. Because if entrepreneurs were more powerful than politicians, would have foreign policy that is grounded on economic imperatives, not so much on ideological imperatives, and of which that is a quite a, a, a serious challenge that we need to tackle. The other issue that on the same vein, you raise the fact that, you know, we've been grade listed and I'm sure the rating agencies are already going to review the, the assessment based on this particular issue. Because if our goal, if we have, if we lose our status in terms of the privileges afforded to us through our goal, we are more likely to dwindle the already dwindled economic prospects, which will then give the rating agencies more ammunition to further downgrade us. As you all know, the amount of, you can access to the loans, but the, the amount of interest that you pay on all those loans is quite economical. So we are literally at the cliff, so to speak. But here's a question for me. If politicians appear to be as this powerful, and if there's a glaring disjunction between the foreign policy that is led by ideology as opposed to economic imperatives, where is the business uh, leadership SA? Where is the BUSA, Business Unity South Africa? Because that should be the apex of business thought leadership, captains of industry to say, but wait a second, if we lose our status and our, we are literally diminishing the returns, as it were. Your take on that? No, Nimrod, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, when we talk about uh, powerful politicians um, and politics being very profitable, you know, it always takes two to tango. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, and we can't get away from that. However, uh, there, there was great work done by uh, the Zondo Commission on exactly what happened, you know, during state capture, let's call it state capture uh, 1.0. So many things were promised and suggested and recommended in that Zondo report that we haven't seen uh, that have been implemented. The report has been issued uh, and the report is gathering dust. Um, we, we At the Center for African Management and Markets, we did a um, an in-depth analysis of the Zondo report because I think it was about 4,000 pages, you know, just to distill it into sort of key takeaways and, and, and what it means for business. And it is it is clear that business has a role to play. But I – and I don't want to defend business. That's not my objective here. But we also need to look at why business is so quiet. And BUSA is making noises, and BLSA is certainly very, very vocal about these matters, um, at least in the media and, and, and on several different platforms. But business uh, has a very um, delicate position uh, and, and is, a, is in a very – not a catch-22, but in a rather challenging position. If it stands up and it criticizes openly in a very aggressive manner, they run the risk of being made an example uh, by government. And no business you know, would want that. Uh, they are quietly getting on with business, uh, uh, focusing on what they're good with. Um, and they just, I mean, business in South Africa has been, uh, since the start of the pandemic, has been fighting to survive across so many industries. 
um, because of load shedding and because of, especially on the trade side, when we look at, you know, to get the goods uh, uh, via rail to the ports and to get them through the ports actually on, you know, onto the ships to go to the various export destinations. Business has their hands full with just trying to survive um, over the last three and a half years. To take on a political fight in the open, and these things tend to be dragged into, you know, the open, uh, where I don't think it's, it's the best place to have these conversations, but I also believe transparency in these conversations are equally important, uh, Nimrod. But it's a. Uh, uh, let me conclude with saying this: we are frustrated with with the way that business acts. Uh, at the same time, we are deeply frustrated with the way that government acts. But Nimrod, we live in a democracy, and we are going to go to the polls next year, where people will hopefully go to the polls uh, because increasingly they're going less and less. Um, to to exercise their vote to say that uh, we want this, these shenanigans and this nonsense that we've been living with, we want it to stop. What we are facing at the moment is a man-made problem, Nimrod. And because it's a man-made problem, the dilemma, the polycrisis in South Africa, it can be solved by man as well. I just don't think that the people that got us into this mess are also the people that are going to get us out of this mess, Nimrod. So let me let me stop with that. I couldn't agree with you more on the last point because if you depend on people who are the architects of the Quagmore Fund and South End, cannot be the same people that we go to um, to seek solutions because we all know the, the outcome is going to be the same, if not worse. And I'm glad you raised the issue of uh, the elections next year as they will give um, us an opportunity to rethink uh, the worthiness of our ballot and extent to which uh, we are seen to be represented on key issues. And in the main, it's also about, you know, creating um, business-friendly environment that would enable um, us as a country to address unemployment, um, which should be something that that keeps every single politician up at night. And if we lose our status um, on a goal, we are further undermining job opportunities, which makes, which makes, uh, uh, you know, we probably be hovering around 40, 41% unemployment rate of which 60 to 70% of that is youth. And we all know that the country is burning purely because there's so many youth that are idling. So it is important that, you know, the economic policies take precedent over ideological um, inclination for that does not pray, uh, put brain on the table. And what I'm taking from you is, is the need for business, um, to have a different voice. And, and I appreciate the fact that business is in a very, um, precarious position because as you've correctly pointed out, they are, you know, trying to survive. Business is not on, on a survival mode, not in a thriving mode which makes it difficult for them to take political battle. And obviously, most of them are very fearful of being a made example. We have seen it. And and just to maybe, you know, uh, put a, a, I had a conversation with one of the senior business person and asked him this very simple question, but why are you guys so quiet? You know, you know, he was very proud. So, you know, we're terrified by these people. We're terrified. We all... No exact one is speaking, but we're very terrified. And, and it does really give a sense to the point that you made earlier that politicians appear to be more powerful than business. And this is another way to run economy because entrepreneurs views 
and innovations, research, <coughs> needs to be the one that take precedent um, in, in, in our global space, which is not really the, the case. Anyway, uh, your party showed on this very interesting point um, of from coming from the uh, coming from the South Africa's foreign policy on neutrality, which we're not neutral, and extent to which we stand to lose our Goa privileges and what it means, and we have further gravitated towards you know the the CFTA as a, a solution, but more of a long term solution, because not all countries are ready to implement some of the CFTA resolutions. And of course, your view is that we need to be, you know, uh, we need to uh, come clean on a lot of issues to begin to create or build confidence in the U.S. as the largest uh, market in in the continent. Your party showed on those very complex issues that you've just parted with this glorious morning. Yes, Nimrod, exactly. I think that's a good summary. Um, I think we should, two things I want to mention. I quickly want to talk about um, uh, our relationship with Europe. And then before I do that, just back to the politics and, um, and business of the day. If we would certainly have less political problems in South Africa um, if the economy was thriving and everybody was getting wealthier. Um, uh, it, it seems to be that that characteristic you know, or, or, or a dynamic uh, um, politicians don't understand or simply have no interest in um, the political issues that we have is because the economy is crumbling and everybody's getting poorer and, and you're fighting for survival. If we solve the economics uh, or the wealth creation on a per capita inflation adjusted and currency adjusted basis, you know, we will have significantly less to talk about, less to say about politics and, and, and more to say about creating an enabling business environment so that you can, you know, have that wealth generation continuing. But that's on the one side. On the other side, let me just quickly say this. We're having this conversation because we may lose our AGOA eligibility status. Um, this is a U.S. conversation. This is a South African-U.S. conversation. It is interesting to note that we are not having this conversation between South Africa and Europe because our trade with the EU is more complex than our trade with the, U, uh, with the U.S. It, and it's far more, far harder to disrupt. Why is it harder? Because most of our trade is actually happening under the Economic Partnership Agreement, the EPA, the, the EPA, uh, with the EU, which is a trade agreement between uh, uh, South Africa, SACU, um, and um, uh, 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 and the EU. So the EU cannot unilaterally, unilaterally rather, remove our benefits because there are five other members uh, countries which also participate in the Economic Partnership Agreement. So I think we should learn from that and 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 you. Know, tie the U.S. into a trade agreement, uh, and we know it's going to be difficult to negotiate, but that shouldn't prevent us from negotiating it so that we don't face this risk again in future. Uh, that, that is my concluding uh, thought. Unfortunately, we're going to leave it here. We've run out of time. Professor, thank you very much for coming through. We certainly hope you've illuminated a number of issues which the listener would have an opportunity to mull over on this very complex issue and and perhaps maybe in our own way begin to make the right noise on how to reposition the South African uh, foreign policy to a point where it it, it, it brings forth economic imperatives as opposed to ideological inclinations which don't take us anywhere. I thank you. Absolute pleasure, Namrod. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, indeed. That was Francois Fouchier, who is the research fellow and Gibbs as well as University of South Africa giving us uh, interesting insights 
on the ramification of South African, you know, pros- possible opportunity losses of the country if Agor were to be, all the benefits associated with Agor were to be removed. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we have to leave it here. We've run out of time. Once again, thank you very much for tuning and stay blessed. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.